Thank you, Michael. A couple of months ago, a professional football player from the Seattle Seahawks made the news, but for something that had nothing to do with football. And if you know me, I'm a 49ers fan, and I'm still really bitter. <laughs> Sorry, Chris, I know you're a Seahawks fan, but... Anyway, the Seahawks player made the news. He was Michael Bennett, a lesser-known linebacker for the Seahawks. And what happened, he just tried to make dinner reservations for he and his family at a local restaurant in Seattle. And he was told when he called the restaurant up that there were no tables available that night, even for professional football players. Not to be dissuaded, he called back a few minutes later and claimed to be Russell Wilson. Now, if you know football, Russell Wilson is the, the star quarterback for the Seahawks. Everyone in Seattle loves Russell Wilson. He's much more popular, much more well-known. And so Bennett calls, pretends to be Russell Wilson, and, well, it turns out that for Russell Wilson, there was a table available. <laughs> the girl taking the reservation on the phone was so giddy that she started quoting Russell Wilson's statistics over the phone. Like, oh, of course we have a table for you. I mean, you were, you were 22 for 30 the other night, and you had a 130 quarterback rating, and all, on and on and on. And uh, <laughs> the restaurant and the server, all of them thought it would be a great honor to be able to serve someone so important as Russell Wilson. Later, Bennett arrived at the restaurant with his family and said, Hi, I'm Russell Wilson. <laughs> and uh, the server's like, oh, good joke, and gotcha. Anyway, the, uh, the, to the restaurant's credit, they still gave Bennett the star treatment, and they roped off his table, treated him like a star, waiting, waiting on him hand and foot for the rest of the evening. But that's what restaurants are supposed to do, right, when we make reservations? Now, maybe not give us that star treatment. I, I've never had a roped-off table. But they're expected, when we make a reservation with them, to serve us. And we pay them handsomely to do so. We expect that. I mean, if we make a reservation in advance and they forget or they don't have us and they're not ready for us, we get frustrated. They're dropping the ball, not doing their job. They're letting their customers down. Probably, we'd probably up and leave and go somewhere else at that point. Now, we don't all own restaurants here on earth. But did you know that we as Christians are waiting on a reservation we are. In a sense, Jesus has made a reservation with his church. He, he hasn't given us a time to expect us, but he's promised us that he's going to show up one day. In the spur of the moment. And like a staff of servers, we are supposed to be ready for his arrival. It will be way beyond the great honor to be able to serve our Lord and our King in person on that day. But what I want to ask today is, will we be ready? Will we be ready for when he shows up? If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can take one few in front of you. It will be on page 871, and then we'll be going on into the next page as well today. Luke chapter 12. It will be beginning in verse 35. We are servants of the king of the universe, and our king is coming. But what does that mean for us? How can we be ready for his arrival? That's what we're going to find out today in this passage. But before we do, let's pray together. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, pray this morning as we look into the pages of your word and see what you have written for us today, that our hearts would be opened, that your spirit would teach us and convict us and encourage us, help us to see your truth, help us to learn from it, help us to grow, help us to apply these words to our lives and know what it means to be ready for your return. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've been with us at all recently, you know that Jesus is on a bit of a rant. 
in, the, in this chapter that we've been reading. Actually, back in chapter 11, we saw some increasing hostile opposition to Jesus and his ministry. Things were starting to go south a little bit. And, and meanwhile, Jesus' disciples who followed Jesus from day one when he called them to follow him must have started to get a little bit worried about this opposition. They were worried about what this meant for them. Were they in danger? If the religious leaders were successful in carrying out their ideas and plots against Jesus, what would it mean for them? Would they lose their homes? they lose access to their families? Would they lose their jobs or their safety or their money? Would they lose their lives? They didn't know what the future held. And so they were starting to get concerned. And and Jesus saw this happening. And in response to all this, he began to teach his disciples in chapter 12. And Jesus wanted his followers to really be preoccupied, not by the temporary, the, the little issues in life that come up every day, but by the eternal. He wanted them to look forward to what was coming one day. So he told them, he told us, that instead of fearing people, we should fear God. Think long term. Don't fear death. Don't fear what people can do to you, but fear God. Look past death what's coming after. Jesus then encouraged his disciples that his opponents, those who denied him, would get what's coming to them. Just a little bit of encouragement, that vindication was coming, and that that people that acknowledged Jesus would find that vindication one day, and they'd be acknowledged by God himself. After that, he challenged his followers to get their focus off of their earthly possessions. Instead, we're to focus on attaining heavenly treasures being rich toward God. And last week, we saw Jesus continue by addressing our all-too-prevalent worry and anxiety. That we're so focused on the day-to-day issues instead of on eternity. We don't have faith that in the meantime, God will take care of us. He'll look after us. So once again, Jesus challenged his followers to seek his kingdom first. And just a a little bit of review, in verse 29, this is what he said, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Look forward. Keep your eyes straight ahead. You see that theme running through all those passages? That we need to think eternally, not short-term. Don't get caught up in the worries of today. Look forward. Look eternal. Therefore, stop fearing man's temporary threats. Stop accumulating temporary riches and possessions. Stop worrying about temporary concerns. Ensure your treasure is secure in heaven and that you treasure Christ above all else. And verse 34 said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, eternity may seem somewhat of a, a bit of an abstract concept to me. That it doesn't make much sense to us because we haven't experienced it firsthand. But let me tell you, heaven is very real. It will be very physical for us and it will be wonderful. And Jesus Christ really is physically and tangibly returning to this earth one day. It's going to happen. Our eyes will see him. Our ears will hear him. Our hands will be able to touch him. But for now, we're living in the time between the times. Between Jesus' first coming in history and his second coming in the future. And there's tension there. Between the times. We are waiting for his return. And we've been waiting a long time, haven't we? Quite a long time. Unfortunately, many Christians have been lulled to sleep by that long wait. We've waited so long that sometimes the promised future for us doesn't seem real. That this earth starts to feel like it... That It's all there is. Like there's nothing else. Heaven starts seeming imaginary to us. We wonder, well, is Jesus ever really coming back? Maybe we start to doubt. 
if you feel this way or, or if you've ever felt this way, what Jesus says in Luke 12 is for you today. Okay? Look what he says, starting in verse 35. It says this. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this. That if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Get into some of the details of these verses in the next little while. There's some pretty clear things, and there's some pretty confusing things to us. But I think the main point of this why Luke has it here, why Jesus said it, is very clear, right? It's pretty clear. Get ready for Jesus' return, okay? I put it this way, that we will be blessed if we are found ready for the unexpected return of Christ. We will be incredibly blessed if we are found ready for Jesus' unexpected return to earth. You ever seen the slogan, perhaps on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or something, Jesus is coming, look busy? Ever seen that before? It's only partially accurate. Jesus is coming back, but he doesn't necessarily want to find us being busy, okay? That could have some negative connotations, especially if we're only looking busy, right? But while Jesus doesn't necessarily want to find us busy, Jesus does want to find us ready. Okay? A better slogan would be, Jesus is coming, get ready. Right? Verse 40. You also must be ready for the Son of Man, that's Jesus speaking of himself, is coming at an hour you do not expect. And to illustrate this point, Jesus told a parable. All the way from verse 35 to 38. Let's just read that again really quick. Verse 35 says, Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So this is a picture of a man who traveled away from home to go to a wedding, a master. Uh, this was a well-to-do man. Okay, He had a number of servants at home. And so when he left home... He left his house in the care of his servants to take care of things. Now, I'm comfortable enough in my manhood to admit that I enjoy the TV show Downton Abbey. <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to relinquish my man card either, okay? My wife said I could keep it. <laughs> but if you don't know the show, it's a British period drama about a big estate in the early 1900s, okay? It's basically this castle where this rich family lives along with many of their servants. And the viewers get to experience over the years the many joys and sorrows these people have in the times that they lived. But I think the show itself is a great picture of the good relationships servants can have with their masters. At least, especially if you're not talking about slaves that are subjugated. This, this is very different, okay? Most of the servants at Downton Abbey love their masters, and vice versa. They look after each other. Say, if the family that lived in this estate went away for a holiday sometime, okay, the, the servants would be entrusted to hold down the fort, and they gladly do so. And when the family returns, the servants would be expected to meet them at the door, dressed ready to help at whatever need the masters have at that moment. They're happy to do so. In the same way, I imagine that the servants in Jesus' parable had a similar good relationship with their master. They were honored to serve him. In a first century household, 
servants were usually treated like part of the family. They were that welcome in the home, that that built up, and they were paid wages for the work that they did so that they could earn a livelihood. It was a mutually beneficial relationship. Servants were honored to serve, to be given good, stable work, and masters helped take care of the servants, looking after their needs, providing for them. The servants would have been happy to look after their master's interest to wait for his return one day. So this man sets off to a wedding, likely told the servants, okay, Watch out for me, because I'm going to be coming probably around tomorrow night. Don't know when exactly. But when I get home, I'd like to see the house be ready to receive me. Okay? When I arrive, have it warm, have it lit up, maybe light a fire. Okay? And like some kind of snack or small meal before I go to bed, have that ready for me. And, and I'll need some help getting unpacked from my journey. So just, just stay dressed, be ready. Now... They didn't have cell phones in those days. They didn't have email, or, and you didn't have ways to update people in advance of your travel plans and how they were going. So, and you know, also, wedding parties often went for hours and hours, even days long. People would leave, and they'd come back a week later from a wedding. So these servants had to wait expectantly with very little information. And they had to be ready to help their master at the drop of a hat, no matter what hour of the night he showed up at. And said, verse 35, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning. In other words, keep the lights on and don't put your PJs on yet. (laughs) Don't fall asleep. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And this parable actually has a positive ending. These servants stayed awake, and they were blessed. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. However, how the servants are blessed would have been rather shocking to the people Jesus was talking to. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Okay, if you don't get what's going on here, basically the master walked into the house, saw that his servants had everything in order, they kept the lights on, they opened the door, they helped him unpack, they had some food ready on the table for him, and when he saw how his servants fulfilled his wishes, he was thrilled. He was so thrilled that he was like, well, wow, you guys are good. Really good. Let me, I'll tell you what. Okay, sit down, take a break. You've worked hard at this. Take a break. Let me take care of this meal. Let me serve you. Then the master put on a set of servants' work clothes and began waiting on his servants. Now, this would have been an unthinkable role reversal in Jesus' day. No master would ever do this. Philip Reichen asks, what master would ever wear a servant's clothing or invite his slaves to sit down to his own feast? What master would ever make himself nothing by taking the form of a servant? And then we realize it's exactly what Jesus did for us. Philippians 2, famous passage. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Only a God like Ours would do something like this for his servants. Remarkable. Now, we know that this clearly happened when Jesus came to earth for the first time. Mark 
10.45, Jesus himself said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He served people out of love throughout his whole life and, and ministry. He served his disciples at the Last Supper, even stooping to wash their feet. But of course, his chief act of service, as Philippians 2 told us, was serving all his followers by humbling himself to the point of death, purchasing our freedom and forgiveness with his death on the cross. So it happened the first time he came. But we will actually experience the blessings of Jesus' sacrifice much more fully when he comes again at his second coming. Jesus here was pointing his disciples to a day far in the future that that they would be incredibly blessed by his return. They wouldn't have understood this yet, obviously. They didn't get it. They didn't even understand that Jesus was yet leaving earth, yet alone coming back. But when Jesus returns to earth for the second time, we will be blessed in indescribable ways. Just a few ways. We know Jesus is preparing a home for us now as we speak in heaven. If I go, I will prepare a place for you. When we see Christ, he will fully justify, purify, sanctify and glorify us. He'll vindicate us, reward us, perfect us beyond what we could imagine. He'll pour these blessings on us. But all of these blessings will come our way because 2,000 years ago, Jesus stooped and served his fallen people in grace and love sacrifice. Now, we can get really confused as we read this passage. If we read down to verse 39 and think that it is part of the same parable, okay, it's not. Verse 39 says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Where'd the thief come from? He wasn't in the story till now, but this is actually a separate, very brief parable that makes a different point. That those who are not ready for Christ's return will suffer great loss. Okay? In the first parable, we're the servants and Christ is the master. In the second parable, we're actually the master of the house and Christ is the thief. This is actually a common picture in Scripture, that when Christ comes, it will be like a thief. 2 Thessalonians 5.2 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's a criminal or a bad guy or a burglar. That's not his point. Okay? But if I were to tell you that tonight, tonight, this very night, at 2 in the morning, that thieves are going to come break into your house, to steal your most valuable possessions. What would you do? Get ready for them, right? (laughs) If you knew exactly when a thief was coming, you could easily protect yourself. Couldn't you? Okay? You could install an alarm system. could lock all your doors and windows. Make sure they're closed tight. You could hide all your valuables well, or maybe give them to a friend for safekeeping. Maybe go grab your baseball bat. Be ready. Or better than that, you could call the cops in advance. Have them stake out your house, right? (laughs) Hey, thieves are coming. 2 a.m., be there. (laughs) You knew that. But who knows when a thief is coming? No one. That's Jesus' point. If only you knew when Jesus was coming, you'd be ready for sure. I can guarantee you. But we don't. And because we don't know, many people will not be prepared for his return. And it won't be a very nice surprise. The second coming of Jesus is an absolutely certain event, but with a very uncertain timing. After Jesus ascended into heaven, angels promised the disciples, 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's a sure thing. It's happening. Jesus himself promised in the second to last verse in the Bible, Surely I am coming soon. Surely. The return of Christ is actually spoken of more than 300 times in the New Testament. But... None of them tell us when it's going to happen. We don't know when, which is why Jesus said here again, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, despite all we've said so far, we haven't really addressed the core question here. And that is, what does it mean to be ready for Jesus' return? If it's so important that we are ready for his return, how can we be sure we're ready? What do we have to do? Now, we could answer this question in a variety of ways. I'd like to quickly propose four ways, okay? Number one, we must be saved. Okay? If we haven't been saved by Jesus and his grace yet, we are absolutely not ready for his return. This is the time, the time between the times. This is the time that the Lord is patiently waiting for us to repent. And once he returns, it will be too late. And like I said, it will not be pleasant for those who are not ready. So I urge you today, believe in Jesus. Leave your sins behind. Run to him. Let him wash you clean. It is only by God's grace that any of us will ever be ready. Okay? Number two, we must be pursuing heavenly treasure. I get this from the context of this passage. I mean, Jesus just got done saying, verse 33, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then, right after this, he tells us, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So how can we get ready? By taking what he's given and investing it in God's kingdom. Okay? This will ensure that our treasure... And our hearts are in the right place when he comes. If we are trying to build our own kingdom here, it will crumble when Jesus returns. Number three, we must be alert. In other words, we must stay awake like the servants in this parable. Not physically awake, okay? Jesus isn't encouraging insomnia here. He's telling us to be spiritually awake, aware of what's going on around us. If we stay constantly mindful of the fact that Christ may return at any moment, I believe that that thought would immensely affect how we live day to day. Hugely change our lives and the way we live. Number four, we must be vigilant. D.A. Carson says this about the parable, The disciples, therefore, must make themselves ready for Christ's return by being diligently employed in God's service, like servants who are always prepared for the Master's return. Diligently employed at God's work, being vigilant to keep doing what God wants us to do until he returns. Now, it's more than just being busy. It's being busy with the right things. Giving. Serving, loving, witnessing, worshiping, the list could go on. These are the things that we need to be found doing when Christ returns. And these are the ways that we can make ourselves ready for the return of Christ. After saying these words, Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect, Jesus was actually interrupted. 
this time by one of his disciples, Peter. Likes to speak up at very opportune times. Verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, I'm not sure exactly why Peter asked this question at this time, but obviously he was confused. He didn't know exactly what Jesus' point was. He's like, Jesus, is this something that we should really be paying a special close attention to? Or maybe are you just talking to those other people out there? (laughs) Or, uh, like, is this more general teaching intended for everyone or maybe just for us 12? Are are we in trouble? (laughs) Don't know why, but he asked the question. Now, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer at all. I think it's probably because it was the wrong question to ask. Jesus' return would have implications for everyone. All would be impacted. And either way, it definitely applied to Peter. It didn't even matter if he was talking to everyone or the disciples. It applied to him no matter what. And so he should have been focused on himself. I think the same goes for us. Okay, This will impact everyone. So focus on you. And your response to Jesus' return. I think the New Living Translation puts Jesus' answer well. Verse 42, we'll read it in this version in a second. But he said, the Lord replied, I'm talking to any faithful, sensible servant to whom the master gives the responsibility of managing his household and feeding his family. Any servant who hears this. So instead of answering Peter's question, Jesus issued a challenge. Let's read it. In the ESV here together, verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Now this was the beginning of yet another parable, which basically asked, Who's going to step up to the plate? Who's going to be found faithful? There's work to be done while Jesus is away. Who's going to be responsible to do it? Who's the faithful and wise manager? And like the servants from the earlier parable, those found faithful will find great blessing. Here's the main message we're going to see from the second half of the passage here, that we will be rewarded in the way we are found faithful until the promised return of Christ. Christ will reward us based on the way we are found faithful or unfaithful until his return. Verse 42, again, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? So we need to be found ready, first part. Second part, we need to be found faithful. Faithful in what way? Well, Jesus here was talking about being a faithful manager, or other versions say a steward. You know what a steward is? Okay, a steward is someone who is entrusted with some kind of responsibility by someone above them. So in this case, a servant entrusted by a master with some task or responsibility on an estate, a steward will be entrusted to manage something about the estate. So some will be responsible for managing their fellow servants. They're given a level of authority over them. Or or some were given charge of the finances of the estate. Or maybe the food supply. Or so on. And these people would have to steward to take care of whatever they were given by the master. Now, did stewards own any of those things? No. Their master owned everything on the estate. But... They were given responsibility for a time at their master's discretion. Likewise, we need to be found faithful with whatever God entrusts us with as faithful stewards. Okay, The idea of being good stewards and stewardship and this idea is really, it underlies many of our recent passages. It it underlies them. See, being rich... Or being poor isn't necessarily wrong. We are called to be good stewards either way of whatever God gives us. On the other hand, selfishly hoarding possessions is clearly not being a good steward. Saw that very clearly. Not being wise. 
On the other hand, using our riches or possessions to love God, to love others, to serve them, is good stewardship. It's taking care of things in the way God intends them to be. Pursuing heavenly treasure above everything else is being a very wise steward with what we've been given. Let me ask you this question. Is there anything that we really own on earth? No. There's not. We think we do. We don't. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything. Even the breath you're taking right now. He owns it all. We are entrusted with it. We're stewards. This is such a crucial concept we have to grasp in order to be wise stewards. We have to understand we don't own anything. It's all on loan. It's all God's. God owns it. We use it. We take care of it and the ways that we choose to use them as stewards. But, Scripture is very clear, stewards will be held to account. So, how are we using God's stuff? How are we stewarding God's things? Theologians speak of three things we need to steward in particular, and there's more than this, but these are good summaries. Our time, our talents, and our treasure. Our time, our talents, our treasure. Our time. How are we using our time? Okay. Our time may, in fact, be our most precious commodity. Think about it. Talents or gifts, they can be learned, developed. Okay? Money can be replenished. But once our time is gone, it's gone. We can't get it back. So are we being wise stewards of the time that has been given to us as a gift God. Our talents. We each have natural talents that God has blessed us with. If you're a follower of Christ, you've also been given spiritual gifts to serve the church. So, are you using your gifts and talents to glorify God? Or are you squandering them? Let them go unused or go to waste. Our treasure. Talked a lot about recently. But if we get this concept that God owns everything, all of our earthly treasure, all our money, all our possessions are really God's treasure. Okay? And we are stewarding our money and possessions on earth. So are we stewarding them in wise and God-honoring ways? Providing for our family. Giving to the Lord's work. Giving to those in need around us. I would dare say that if the vast majority of our riches are not going towards those things, then we are not stewarding in the way God would desire us to steward. Let's take a minute. Think about what God's given you to steward over right now. Your minutes and hours and days, weeks, weekends, months, years, your talents and abilities, your gifts, maybe your gifts of teaching or serving or hospitality or whatever the Lord has gifted us all, your bank account, your house, vehicle, you go on, phone, computer, whatever, all our possessions. Perhaps you've been entrusted with a particular ministry. You're a steward of that ministry. Or maybe, parents, you've been entrusted with your kids for a short time. Steward them wisely. Ask yourself, Are you seeking to steward what you've been entrusted with for 
God's glory. See, we are all stewards, whether you knew it or not. And we are all waiting for accountability, whether you like it or not. Are you ready? Be faithful. Look at the blessings that are in store for the faithful. You think about it, it really blows you away. Verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Okay? Now for all the recent talk about possessions, this is very fitting. We may lose our worldly possessions, but we will gain God's possessions. Okay? Think about that. If we are good stewards of what God gives us now, he'll give us much more then. In essence, faithful stewards get a massive promotion. Okay? This means that God entrusts us with more of what he entrusts us with now. Okay? You think you have to lose it all. No, you'll gain it all. Infinite time. Better talents. Better gifts to serve God. Much superior and plentiful treasures. God, it says God will set us over all his possessions. Don't underestimate that. Okay? As for promotions, this is the highest you can possibly go. Being appointed as a manager in heaven. Okay, Charles Spurgeon said this, May the Lord keep you waiting, working, watching, that when he comes you may have the blessedness of entering upon such lo- some larger, higher, nobler service than you could accomplish now, for which you are preparing by the lowlier and more arduous service of this world. Amazing reward. Amazing blessing. However, while the reward will be rich for those found faithful, it will be a very different story for those found unfaithful. I tell you, the next couple verses are some of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. (laughs) I think we should get this crocheted on a nice little pillow or something. Verse 45, (laughs) but if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Yikes, right? Anyone think Jesus was some soft, peaceful hippie? Wrong. No one in the Bible spoke more often of hell and judgment than Jesus. And and verse 46 is actually talking about being punished in hell. That's what it's talking about. And in case you're wondering, this is likely not talking about a believer losing his salvation, okay? There is, this is someone who is placed with the unfaithful because he was unfaithful. He was an unbeliever. But we've got to be careful to not, as this man did, postpone our faithfulness. Okay, I mean... Jesus hasn't come back yet. We wonder, will he ever come back? It's taken so long and and so often because of that, we don't take his warnings of his imminent return very seriously. We think things, well, I'll get serious about my faith once I'm out of high school or once I'm out of university. That's when I'll get serious. Or, Or I'll pursue Jesus more when my kids are older and I have to be a better example to them. Or maybe I'll get baptized someday down the road. Don't know, don't know exactly when. Or maybe I'll join a small group next year. Or I'll serve in the church someday when I have more time. You may never have more time. 
So ask, are you postponing faithfulness today? In any way. This passage says you can't postpone faithfulness because Jesus may come back tonight or tomorrow. His return is imminent. And we can't take this warning seriously enough. We must be found ready and faithful. And the final two verses make the point that faithfulness will be proportionately rewarded, or and vice versa. Unfaithfulness will be proportionately punished. Verse 47 says, And that servant knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And it seems to imply that in eternity, in some way, there will be varying degrees of judgment and reward. This is not talking about salvation. Okay? But there will be some kind of varying degrees of judgment and reward. And if God entrusted someone with lots of time, lots of talent, lots of treasure, the more will be required of them. The more will be expected of them. The greater the gifts, the greater the expectation. It says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Remember um, Peter Parker's uncle in Spider-Man? He dies, with great power comes great responsibility. It's that idea. We wonder, well, have we been entrusted with little or much? You tell me. We're all different, but I believe we have all been Enormously blessed. We have resources and prosperity and opportunities unheard of in history. We are the richest people on earth. With advancements in technology and travel and medicine, we are highly privileged to live in the day that we do. Whether or not you're aware of them, we've all been given great talents. Even our lifespans are some of the longest in millennia. We're given more time, usually. So it does us well to meditate on this verse. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You know what this passage does for me above everything else? It sure illuminates the way that I have failed miserably and fallen short as a steward. Doesn't it? I mean, countless times. I have wasted my time. I've left my talents idle. I've hoarded earthly treasure. I've pursued my kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And for that, I deserve hell. But this doesn't make me hopeless. What it does is it points me back to Jesus. Do we not desperately need a Savior? Do we not desperately need a Savior. The gospel is not for the faithful, but the unfaithful servants. That's what grace is. Praise God that Jesus came down and took the form of a servant, a suffering servant, Scripture tells us. And as Hebrews 3.6 says, he was found faithful as a son over God's house. Jesus fulfilled God's will where we never could have and offers his grace to us today. Grace that can make us unfaithful people into faithful servants of his. Amazing grace. I recently heard Ed Stetzer preach on this passage, and he told a fascinating story from history. You ever 
heard of what is called the New England's Dark Day? Probably not, but maybe you have. Uh, on May 19, 1780, now this really happened. You can look it up, okay? There's a weird darkening of the skies over New England, which is the northeastern part of the U.S. and parts of Canada, and maybe even here. We don't know exactly, but the cause was likely a combination of smoke from forest fires, cloud cover, and thick fog. That's what, as best we can ascertain. And the darkness was so complete that people had to use candles in the middle of the day, like at noon. And the, the darkness didn't dissipate until sometime the next day. It's really spooky. Okay? Can you even imagine what this would have been like? Okay, just going about your day when all of a sudden the sun goes red and the sky goes black and everyone around you starts freaking out. Talk about feeling like it must have been the end of the world. The story continues that the Connecticut state legislature was meeting on that day, so like the state parliament, basically. And the representatives that were in the House, were just like everyone else in New England, were gripped with fear. Okay, they didn't know what was going on. They couldn't check the news and see if this was happening other places. All they knew was the sky was black, sun was red, crazy things were happening. And they began to ask, ask well, should we cancel our meeting? And should we go home to our families? I mean, what if this is the end of the world? Is this what we really want to be doing at the end of the world? A Christian man, Abraham Davenport, said he spoke, stood up and spoke up and said this, I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is... I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. A poem that commemorated the speech ended, We will let God do his work, and we will see to ours, bring in the candles. And Ed Stetzer concluded his sermon after telling the story by asking a penetrating question. He said this, Would you... Live and give the same way you are now if you thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow. Would you live and give the same way if you thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow? We should ask ourselves this question today, really every day. Because ready or not, here he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us our unreadiness and our unfaithfulness in waiting for your arrival. We've wasted our time, we've squandered our talents, we've hoarded our money and riches and possessions. Forgive us our sins and give us your grace once again. Grace that is so wonderful that when we deserve hell, you give us heaven. Please keep this in front of our eyes today as we go forth and every day that we would be found ready. We would be found faithful servants and stewards of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.